Thank you. Thanks for welcoming me here. It's been great to spend the weekend. This is my first time uh, in Minneapolis, and uh, it's been wonderful. Uh, I said in the first service, uh, this is not like our church. I mean, uh, we, we are in an old uh, strip mall. Uh, it was a, previously a Hollywood video. I don't know if you remember that, if you are uh, old enough to remember that. Uh, but we recently took over a tanning salon and a game store and a jewelry store as well. So we're right there. We got a Mexican restaurant on one side, a Dollar General on the other. But what, what is so encouraging is to know like uh, we are different, but we're the same, right? That we're from the same family, uh, that we have uh, the same spirit, that we are together, even in different locations and different places in different states, the people of God on mission together. And uh, I just want to say this, you know, I got to hang out with Petey. We've run a lot this weekend. I've gotten to hear about you. I've gotten to know a little bit about your church and uh, the vision night that's coming. I, I was saying, I, I was talking to Mara before uh, the first service, like, I really wish I could be here. I was like, are you live streaming it? She's like, no, you got to be here. It'll be online afterwards, but you got to be here. Uh, and as I was praying, even before this service, I felt like God just impressing on my heart this uh, fresh wind of the Spirit that He is in... Um, He's excited to blow through in this place to, to fan the flame in a new way uh, for you as a people. And I know you have a rich history, uh, but I'm excited about what God is doing and going to do in this church in the future. And so I hope you're also excited about what he has in store. Uh, it's good news. It's good news. Uh, I am the guy who got PD running, and uh, the reason was we'd go to Portland uh, twice a year for classes. We'd sit in a room for eight hours, and afterwards, I just wanted to get out, like, and move, just move my body. So I'd go running, and uh, one time, PD said, can I come along? Or maybe I pressured him into coming along. That was probably more the case. The whole time, he told me how much he hated running, why he hated running. Uh, but we got back to the house we were staying at, and we sat down, and he was talking a little bit about some frustrations physically with his health. And, uh, and, he, and I said, dude, you can do this. Like, you can be a runner. If I'm a runner, you can be a runner. And he went home, and he started running. And within a year, he became a better runner than I was. His first race he ever ran was an ultra marathon. He became a uh, Nike running ambassador. And I was at home watching all the success of PD's running, and like, why, Lord, what about me? I'm the one. Who told him about running? Uh, but but I, I've always loved running. Not always. When, when in high school, I fell in love with running. Uh, but the best way to run is to run with someone, right? To run with someone. Someone who will push us and that we can push. Someone that will encourage us, that, will, that we can encourage along the way. And, and that's what I've experienced in relationship with Petey. But what, what's interesting about the next section of 1 Corinthians is Paul uses running as an example of how we live out our faith life. And in chapter 8, he doesn't specifically mentioned running, but, but he talks about how we run this life together, how we run this race, how we run in our faith together. It's why places like CPC will constantly encourage you to get involved, to get in a group, to, to serve, to, to get in a study. It's not just because they need your help, though we are in this together, but it's also because they know that when you're involved in that way, you have someone to run with. The question that kind of comes up as we read into chapter eight is, what do we do when the people we're running with see things differently than we do? Like, what do we do when there's a disagreement with the people that we're running with, maybe even around issues of what is and isn't sin? And what responsibility do we have to each other when we find these points of difference? And so I'm going to read to you out of all of chapter 8 so that you can kind of get a little context of what is happening in this church. It's, it's just as controversial as the last section, only just for them. We're over the topics they're talking about. But the things that Paul talks about will give us insight into how we run well together. So 
I'm going to read to you out of chapter 8. If you have uh, the inclination, you want to read along, you can grab the Bibles that are in front of you. We're going to read all 13 verses. So it says this, Now about food, sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and whom we live. There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial foods, they think of it as having being sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word, that it speaks to us written 2,000 years ago in this moment. And while we may not wrestle through what to do with meat sacrificed to idols, we do wrestle through complicated topics that cause division and, and, and maybe even separation. God, we want to hear from your spirit through your word this morning so that we can run this race well together. So open our hearts, God. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We say, come, Holy Spirit, have your way. Amen. You know, what the church in Corinth and what we are facing today are very similar. Now, the, the topics and the context are different, but for us to wrap our minds around how we could apply these things to our lives in the here and now, we need to understand a little bit about what is happening in the city of Corinth and in ancient Rome. In ancient Rome, the, the world was very pluralistic. Each town or city had several different shrines or temples that would be set up for different gods uh, that were worshipped in that time. And in Paul's day, there were more shrines and more temples being set up and worshipped to the emperor and worshipped to Caesar. And not just Caesar, but his father and his children. And so there were shrines and temples everywhere. And what people would do most often is they would bring something to sacrifice to the shrine, to the temple. And that, that, would be, that animal would be sacrificed and then butchered and would be prepared for a meal. And so you would bring your entire household into the temple to have a meal that you would eat and worship to that god. Now, often that meat was, the, the, the animal provided more meat than what your family or your household could eat, and so it would be shared with others, and people would come into the temple kind of uh, to eat, like at a restaurant, like a pagan steakhouse, right? They would all come around and eat this meat, and they would eat and drink. Most often, things would, be, uh, would happen where people would overindulge, and at the end of the meal, people might participate with the temple prostitutes in worship through that, so eating and drinking and doing whatever in worship to these pagan gods. 
Now, the Jewish people at that time who truly loved God would never eat meat sacrificed to idols, right? I want you to pay attention that I've changed the way I've used the language here, right? The Romans, the Corinthians, who did not know Jesus, who were not Jewish, would have thought of these gods as deities, that they were actually gods to be worshipped. And you would do it because they felt they had such significant control over their daily lives. But the Jewish people did not believe that these gods were gods at all. They would have classified them as false gods or as idols. And the Jewish people had a deeply formed belief that there was only one God. Not many gods, not gods over different parts of your life, but one God and his name was Yahweh. In fact, they were reminded of this theological belief daily in a prayer known as the Shema. And for generations, they would pray every single day. Every person you read about in the Bible that is Jewish, from Moses on, prayed the Shema daily. Jesus, Paul, the disciples, they all prayed the Shema. And it goes like this. It's from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We have one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. You may remember if somebody comes to Jesus and they say, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus starts with the Shema. He says, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Most Jewish people in the ancient world would never eat the meat sacrificed to idols. They, they would think we would never participate in something that evil. But, but the church that now these new Christians belong to is made up of people from both backgrounds. You have people who grew up Jewish and then you have people who grew up worshiping in these shrines to pagan gods. And they're trying to work out life together in this new community. And it's new. They're four years old as a church. And so what do we do? Should we eat meat sacrificed to idols or should we not? Are we to eat it? Are we free? Or is it a sin? There's most likely been debate, as maybe you've seen throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, about who has it right, which teacher teaches it right. And we know both sides probably have strong conviction. Of course, Paul, he has some direction, not just about what you should or shouldn't eat as a Christ follower, but also why you should or shouldn't eat it. And what should motivate or inspire your decision around this meat sacrifice to idols? Now, obviously, our world is different today. We're not worried about whether or not we should eat meat sacrificed to idols, but we too live in an age of pluralism. This morning, I want to walk you through five things that we need to recognize as people who declare that Jesus is Lord and Savior of our lives, that that we need to recognize about the age that we live in as we try to apply Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to our lives so that we can run this race well together. So let's just start at the beginning here and recognize that we live in a pluralistic society. And we see it in many different ways. I want to talk about two this morning. First is we live in a world that recognizes that there are many different faiths, many different religions with many different beliefs in what is actually true. What is right? What sacred text we draw from? What divine being is truly in charge of the universe? And part of living in a uh, religiously pluralistic society is people begin to believe that the one way, that one way we can respect others' religious beliefs or faiths is to believe that all faiths or all gods are ultimately leading to the same truth that they are all equal and are unique expressions of the ultimate universal truth that any pursuit of faith will lead to the same God or same divine being. Now, 
trusting Jesus, believing in Jesus, taking Jesus at his word, accepting Jesus as your personal savior, as the Lord of all, means that you have to recognize that this is not true. Right, that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. It connects. Our, our belief in Jesus connects to the Jewish belief of the Shema in the New Testament understanding of a Trinitarian God. Remember, the, the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and, and this monotheistic declaration isn't just a prayer, it is a statement of theology that is shaping the Jewish people's lives. But Paul, in verse 6, he expands this to include the Trinitarian understanding of God by mentioning Jesus. In verse 6, he says, yet for us there is but one God. This is that Jewish theological statement. But then he says, the Father, from whom all things come and from whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. He, he says we have two persons that we recognize in the Trinity, which we include the Holy Spirit. We already spoke on that as we prayed for the deacons today. But, but this remarkable theological declaration would have been a groundbreaking statement in the Corinthian society for Paul to make, both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, right? The Jews say, we have one God, Yahweh. And he's like, yes, but he exists in God the Father and God the Son, and they've done the same things for us. And for the, the Gentiles, those who were worshiping in the pagan temples, they would have been like, no, no, it's not all those gods. It is one God in the person of Jesus and God the Father. They, they both are one part of one true God. Today, as Christ followers, we must hold to that same truth. There is one God in three persons, and we must hold to the truth while still respecting and loving our neighbor who may believe differently without compromising our belief in the one God. Now, the second thing we have to recognize in a pluralistic society is, is that the world isn't just full of many different faiths, but it's full of things that demand our devotion, and we are eager to give our devotion to these things. Another word we give to this kind of thinking is, uh, to, to the things that demand our devotion and that we are eager to give our devotion to is idols. In the ancient world, an idol would have been a physical representation of a deity. Idol worship was strictly prohibited for the Jewish people because God is not something that can be made or replicated or contained or created by human hands. And there are still physical representations of gods in our world, but idolatry takes on a different form in our culture. Tim Keller, a pastor from New York who recently passed away, he wrote this beautiful book called Counterfeit Gods. And he says this, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look to and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I feel my life has meaning then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There, there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Idol worship is turning to anything other than God and looking to that thing for what only God can give you. And here's what's so interesting. Different things can be idols to different people. Right? Some people feel the pull or the promise of wealth. Others, power, others, success, others, material things like clothes or technology or cars or homes. For others, it's relationships or stages of life. It can be things like food or drink or sports, entertainment, 
Anything can become an idol in your life, and you can live your life in worship to that thing, in devotion to that idol. Even this morning as I was reading and praying in my uh, own quiet time, I was realizing again and again how control is an idol in my life. And by control, I mean by I want things to all work the way I think they're supposed to work. And I will give anything to bring things under control. And it becomes an idol. And I think to myself, I'll finally feel peace or I'll be happy if this situation would just be settled. And subtly, this thing takes on a role that God is meant to play. The one that I'm meant to trust in and believe has control over all things. I wonder this morning, what what can be or has been an idol in your life? It's important to slow down and ask this question on a regular basis. What am I looking to for security, for significance? What have I trusted in, in ways that only God could, could, should and could be trusted? Where have I given my imagination to? What am I giving my attention to that ought to only be reserved for God? And what impact has that thing had on your life? on the way that you're living, on the the race that you're running? How has misdirected devotion separated you from God? How has it led your your heart or your life into sinful behavior that has damaged your heart and mind? And, And really, if we're running together, how has your misdirected devotion damaged the hearts and minds of those who are running with you? We live in this pluralistic world full of things that demand our devotion. And most people in the world are running hard after those things. But as those who have been made new in Jesus, we have to regularly remember and recognize there is one God and everything else is nothing. I've read this a few times. Paul says in verse 4, an idol is nothing at all. Basically, it's, it's worthless. It's just a piece of wood. An idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Paul's black and white here. Like there's no wiggle room. There's no like understanding or debate. And everything else he says in chapter 8 builds off of this truth. In fact, everything he says over the next couple of chapters is built on this belief. But, but what's interesting to me is he's less black and white about whether or not eating meat sacrificed to idols is sin. And that's because he recognizes that we all experience the realities and temptations in our world in different ways because we all have different experiences and different tendencies. One thing that Paul invites us to recognize is that what feels like sin for one person may not be sinful to another. And I'll clarify this more in a moment, but I just want to unpack how Paul talks about it here. Verse 4, he says, an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. But he goes on to say in verse 7, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Like, not everyone knows this or understands this, yes. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. The problem Paul's addressing is that several Christians in the Corinthian church had been regular worshipers in the shrines of idols before they gave their life to Jesus. Like they knew what went on at those dinners. They, they understood how dark the worship was. Some of their core memories with their family of origin are, are in those temples. They remember participating in the sexual practices with temple prostitutes and the smell of the meat or the taste of it. It was all a reminder of the darkness they had lived in that had defined their life before they had turned to Jesus and Jesus set them free. 
It wasn't just something that they would rather not participate in. It was something their conscience would not allow them to participate in. To eat meat offered in worship to an idol, to, to eat meat sacrificed or cooked to a false god, to purchase meat in the market where the proceeds would benefit that idol worship. For those believers, that, that felt like sin. And some may even fear if they participated in part of it, they may fall back into all of the old sinful life. But then there are other Christians, and Paul seems to be one of them that think meat's meat. Like, it's just meat. If there's no such thing as other gods because there's only one God, if, there are, uh, if idols are just inanimate objects made of wood or stone in some guy's workshop, then meat butchered and cooked and worshipped to nothing is just meat butchered and cooked to be eaten like any other meat, right? What feels like sin to one person may not be sinful for another. What's interesting to me is we face circumstances like this all the time in our world. In fact, in this room, there could be circumstances like this. There, there are Christians today who, who uh, won't drink alcohol or who won't go to restaurants with the word bar in the title. There are Christians who won't listen to secular or non-Christian music, Christians who will not go to movies or R-rated movies, Christians who won't play cards or go trick-or-treating. There are Christians who can't vote for that party, no matter who the candidate is or what is the circumstances that they're running in. And then there are Christians who would do all those things and not see a problem with any of it and honestly would experience no spiritual issue in any way with that behavior. In fact, you're sitting with each other right now. And so here's the question, and, and I should frame this. At my church, I shouldn't say my church, I mean, at the church that I get to pastor, uh, I ask questions in the middle of the sermon, and I expect answers. And we did this in the first hour, and let me tell you, the depth of answers, okay? So, so I hear it's a little competitive sometimes. Maybe you can top them. Here's the question right here. Why can something feel like a sin to one Christian and not to another? Why can something feel like a sin to one Christian and not to another? I'll take four answers on this. So give me, they better be mediocre at best, okay? So give me some answers on this question. Very back, go ahead. Yeah, we're all unique. We all have unique backgrounds and circumstances. We experience things in unique ways. Good, a couple more. Who's got it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, who we're surrounded by and the voices we, we are listening to. You know, you ra you're raised in homes, you go to schools, you live in a society, and they all inform what we think of as right and wrong. One or two more. Who's got it? Yeah, right here. Yeah, sometimes our motivation. You, you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. You guys watch The Bachelor? I don't because I'm a Christian. <laughs> you guys might. But, but the, every single one of those people on that show are like, he's not here for the right reason. She's here for the right, which implies I'm here for good reasons. And they're, right? It, it's the motivation. One more, one more. Somebody. Yeah, a different understanding of the commandments. Some people have a rich, deep understanding of scripture. And so that might give them freedom. Other people may have a rich, deep understanding and they may actually go, oh, God would not want me to do this. We understand scripture in different ways, right? Paul talks about the people who struggle with the idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols as having a weak conscience, which would mean those who don't struggle with this have a stronger conscience. 
There are plenty of ways we can think about our conscience, but, but it is through our consciences that, that we are most likely to hear and respond to God's Spirit when He speaks to us. And keeping a clear conscience before God is part of basic Christian living. If your conscience, if the Spirit speaks to your conscience, you have to respond. James, Jesus' brother, talks about this idea in chapter 4, verse 17. He says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Isn't it amazing how personal this statement about sin is? How little this statement on sin is about following a list of rules or avoiding a certain kind of bad behavior. Instead, it focuses on responding personally to what God is saying to you, to your heart, to your conscience. Obviously, what we know about God comes from learning his word and understanding his word, staying deeply connected in Christian community, running well together with each other, spending time in prayer. But if a person feels deeply that, that they can best honor God by avoiding a practice or a behavior that someone else feels is completely permissible, then we should all encourage them to honor God by avoiding that practice or behavior. Recognizing this in another person's life should move us to encouragement, but too often I believe it moves us to judgment. Like we judge those we see as weaker to us in the faith. We mock or make fun of someone whose boundaries are tighter, whose convictions are stronger. We look down on them because we don't think they know or understand what it means to follow God as much as we do. Or they would live with greater freedom, the kind of freedom I have because I understand more. And Paul warns us about this. First one, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Right? Focusing on what I know and understand versus what another person doesn't will only increase my belief that I am better than them, which will increase my desire to judge them, which is obviously destructive to the body of Christ. Paul says love builds up. That's the call for those of us who have a little stronger faith. We are to love those who are still growing, who are a little weaker, who need stronger boundaries to protect their hearts until they have stronger self-control. We are to love them in a way that builds them up and keeps them running the race we're called to run. And what love looks like in the way of Jesus is always personal sacrifice for the sake of someone else. Jesus himself says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus says this, and then he shows us what love looks like. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Isn't it interesting that, that this was initiated in the same time where people would bring their sacrifice to please the gods, and then they would eat a meal together. And Jesus says, no, I made a meal for you, and I'm the sacrifice. There's nothing you have to bring. I've done it all. Jesus shows us what love looks like. And then Paul helps us apply the same kind of love to our real life circumstances, right? The ones that the Corinthians are facing. And they say, is it right or wrong to eat meat, sacrifice idols? Paul says, that's a great question, but you have to recognize the answer is always love. What kind of love? The kind of love Christ showed us laying down his life, his rights, so that we can be free of sin. And when it comes to meat sacrifice to idols, Paul says, this is how I would apply it in my life. Verse 13, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. And I love this because it puts tangible steps into what you can do to follow the way of Jesus. Jesus gave up what he deserved so we could be forgiven and made new. Then he invites us to do the same thing in how we live our lives devoted to him. If, if there is something you have a right to do, 
but it brings some harm to someone else's faith. You can follow the way of Jesus and lay down your rights in love so that that person can be built up in faith, so that they too can run well in a world full of idols. Let's pray. God, we come to you as your people and we recognize that we are your people because of the sacrifice of your son. God, as we look into a pluralistic world where there are many things vying for our attention and our devotion, we we just confess that, that we are easily convinced to run after those things. Maybe even confess to the Lord the things that you run after. We say, God, we recognize Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that there is no life outside of of you, God, that there is no life outside of the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we give thanks. God, give us the strength to run well and to encourage those we get to run with. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.